Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Max Deutsch. His new book is titled The Myth of the Intuitive, Experimental Philosophy and Philosophical Method. It has just been published by MIT Press. Deutsch is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Hong Kong. There's a movement in contemporary philosophy known as Experimental Philosophy, or XFI for short. It proceeds against the backdrop of a critique of contemporary analytic philosophy. According to the XFI critique, analytic philosophers rely too heavily on an unsound method it's a method that involves arguing for philosophical conclusions from premises whose force is said to rest solely in what philosophers find to be intuitive or obvious. Using polling and survey methods, experimental philosophers endeavor to show that claims that philosophers often take to be intuitive are in fact not commonly held among non-philosophers and that individuals' sense of what's obvious varies according to factors such as ethnicity, geography, age, and gender. In light of this, X-Files claim that analytic philosophy is doomed, for it treats philosophers' intuitions as evidence in favor of philosophical claims. But the variability of intuitions, they say, shows that these intuitions have no evidentiary weight. Now, in the myth of the intuitive, Max Deutsch defends analytic philosophy against the X-Fi critique. He shows that, in fact, analytic philosophers do not treat intuitions as evidence. Drawing upon careful readings of the texts that are the central targets of the X-Fi critique, Deutsch shows that analytic philosophers rarely appeal to intuitions as if these intuitions provided evidence for anything. The Myth of the Intuitive is a lively and rigorously argued book about a central debate among philosophers about methodology. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Max Deutsch. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great. Happy to be doing this interview. Well, great. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. And thank you, listeners, uh, for uh, tuning in. My guest is Max Deutsch, and we're going to be talking about his new book. It's titled The Myth of the Intuitive, Experimental Philosophy and Philosophical Method. Uh, The book is just published by MIT Press. Um, I recommend the book highly to all philosophers, um, mainly because it's a book about philosophical method. um, And it proposes uh, a powerful rejoinder to what is an increasingly popular and influential 
methodological movement in current academic philosophy. I'm talking about uh, the movement of experimental philosophy, sometimes called X-Fi. Um, now, a lot of X-Fi, as uh, listeners may know, um, draws uh, its motivation from a kind of critical stance or critique of uh, what are taken to be standing methods used in most contemporary analytic philosophy. Um, but Max argues that uh, experimental philosophy and its practitioners, which he calls X-Files, um, have misunderstood the methods uh, of analytic philosophy and misunderstood these techniques that analytic philosophers commonly employ. And that consequently, um, it might be the case, maybe this is uh, uh, too strong yet before we hear Max's arguments, but maybe it's the case, Max thinks, that experimental philosophy rests on a mistake. Um, so there's a lot to discuss. Um, but first, uh, Max, uh, let's start where we usually do, which is uh, with the author telling us a little bit about himself. Yeah, sure. So thanks again for, for uh, conducting the interview, Bob. I'm, I'm very pleased uh, to be doing this. Sure. Um, so, yeah, a little bit about me. Well, I was um, I was born in, uh, in in L.A., in Los Angeles, California, but I but I did a lot of my growing up in uh, Seattle, Washington and in the Midwest also. In a in a small college town called Bloomington Normal, Illinois, which is uh, where I'm talking to you from uh, right now, um, my father uh, is also a philosopher. His name is Harry Deutsch, um, and uh, he lives he lives here in Bloomington Normal, and as do my my in laws. So uh, coming coming to to Bloomington uh, kills two birds with one stone. I guess <laughs> visit with my in laws and, and hang out with my dad. Um, <clears throat> As far as sort of academic background, I went to uh, UC Berkeley um, and, and got an MA, uh, but then I left uh, Berkeley um, after about three and a half years and went to Rutgers, and I got my PhD at Rutgers, and my advisor at Rutgers was Colin McGinn, uh, oh. who was a, uh, a terrific advisor to me, um, and there I wrote a dissertation on the mind-body problem, um, and I argued um, in, in the dissertation that there can be uh, mental facts or properties that are both subjective and physical, and that that possibility, the possibility of subjective physical facts or properties, diffuses some of the most challenging uh, anti-physicalist arguments out there. So, for example, the, the the Mary argument, Jackson's Frank Jackson's famous Mary argument, right? And I guess the Nagel stuff too and, must be a target, and, and the Nagel stuff too. Yeah, good. Yeah. And uh, and so I'm I'm interested in um, many issues in the philosophy of mind and, and language. I've published in philosophy of mind and philosophy of language, and the concern with um, issues in in metaphilosophy, philosophical methodology. That's relatively recent for me. Although I say that when I think back now, I realize that I've been thinking about this stuff since about 2001. Basically, the advent of the the, the experimental philosophy movement. Um, so, so yeah. So should I should I go on about myself, or should should we should should I describe how I came to write uh, the myth of the intuitive? What would you? Sure, that would be good. But also, um, you're teaching now in Hong Kong. Ah, right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm teaching. I'm teaching it. an interesting fact. Right? <laughs> an interesting fact for you. I'm sure. Yes. Yes, I teach at uh, at Hong Kong University uh, in Hong Kong, China, um, and it's. Um, it's been good. I've been there since uh, since 2001, on and off. Actually, I left uh, 
I left HKU um, around 2006, and I took a job um, in North Carolina, East Carolina University, but I stayed there only a couple of years. And then I went back. Luckily, Hong Kong uh, decided they would, they would take me back after a hiatus of a couple of years. Uh, so I went back um, to, to Hong Kong U, and I've been there ever since, since about um, 2007. And I, and I chair the department there now, and uh, things, have been, uh, things have been pretty good in Hong Kong for me, I, I have to say. The uh, the job getting the job. Do you like you like living in Hong Kong? Is that I mean I, I could just imagine. What do I know? But I could yeah. just imagine it was a real adjustment. Or am I wrong about that? No, definitely it was a, very much a, an adjustment. Um, so um, when I when I moved in 2001, of course I thought, <clears throat> well maybe not. Of course that depends. I, I thought it would be a temporary gig. I thought well I'll take this job and then you know I'll, I'll move on. I'll spend mm-hmm. an interesting exotic year in Hong Kong and then I'll and then I'll be back you know, in the, in the good old U.S. of A. Um, but things didn't really work out uh, as planned. And we ended up staying for four years before, uh, before we eventually uh, left. And then, as I said, we, we, we eventually came back. Uh, right. Hong Kong. Um, but yeah, no, living in Hong Kong is very interesting. So the, the, it's a archipelago, a series of islands, Hong Kong and uh, Hong Kong itself is, is the, the main island. Um, but there are a bunch of outlying islands, and I live on one of the outlying islands called Lama Island. And um, Lama is great because um, there are no cars on Lama, so there's a lot of um, green space and uh, lots of lots of places for my kids. I have two daughters, lots of places for my kids to run around, <clears throat> and I commute to work by by ferry. So oh. I so I get on a boat every every day, and I sail into the main island, uh, and then get on a bus and, and head up to head up to campus. Um, and the city itself is just, you know, it's a, it's a blooming, buzzing place and, uh, it's, uh, fascinating, uh, culturally and, uh, and these days also politically. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's been a, it's been a good gig, Hong Kong. Great. So you picked up this interest then in, in philosophical methodology. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I picked up this interest in, in, in philosophical methodology. Yeah. Around, around 2001 or maybe, uh, 2002, a colleague of mine at the time at HKU was Ron Mallon. Um, and Ron Mallon is one of the authors of one of experimental philosophy's most famous uh, documents, a paper called uh, Semantics Cross-Cultural Style. Um, and that's written by uh, Edward Machery, Ron Mallon, Sean Nichols, and Stephen Stitch. Stephen Stitch is really the, you know, the, 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 the granddaddy of, uh, of X- I was going to say Godfather, Godfather, but maybe that's not exactly right. <laughs> the Godfather of X Files everywhere. So, so, so Steve uh, is responsible I think, for for a lot of um, uh, of this um, um, uh, a lot of this movement. But anyway, Ron um, Ron is a student of uh, Steve's, and Ron was there. He was a colleague of mine, and they were um, he was working on um, uh, the vignettes. Uh, that they gave to their experimental subjects. He was working on the vignettes, that, and, and this was a paper that, that has to do with um, the philosophy of language. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about its details uh, later on. But anyway, Ron and I were talking about the details of the vignettes, um, and uh, we, of course, also um, started talking about uh, the larger issue of the role of intuitions um, in philosophy. Um, so it was really sort of talking with Ron, uh, who was a, a, a budding experimental philosopher at the time, Talking with him about the role of intuitions in philosophy that got me started on this stuff around 2002, 2001, some, somewhere around there. But actually, that conversation, the conversation about the role of intuitions in philosophy started even a bit earlier because um, 
as I said, I went to I went to Rutgers for graduate school and Steve Stitch was um, teaching there and he uh, passed me a draft of a draft of a review that he that he co-authored with another student of his, Jonathan Weinberg, who's a, a central figure in, in experimental philosophy. And this was a review of Frank Jackson's book from metaphysics uh, to ethics. I think that's that's not from ethics to metaphysics. No, it's from metaphysics. <laughs> it's from metaphysics yeah. to ethics. Uh, <laughs> And um, and in that there's some there's some sort of ex by tinges in that review to which I reacted negatively. So I had some, you know, conversations with Jonathan and, and Steve, Steve Stitch. Um, you know, I, I said, I, I don't think you're on on the right track here. And, and so so it was sort of in graduate school. I began to get interested in then talking with Ron about this, um, about the work that that eventually went into this paper, semantics, cross-cultural style. That was that was how I started thinking about uh, experimental philosophy and. Uh, methodological issues uh, more generally. Well, great. So let's let's dive into the book because um, uh, this is a very nice segue. Um, uh, I usually start these interviews with asking people sort of about philosophical methodology, but since this book is uh, all entirely about um, those issues, um, maybe one place to begin, um, uh, which is part of where the book begins, is uh, to sort of pick up on what you were just saying. Can you uh, I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners have some sense of what uh, experimental philosophy is, um, but maybe not uh, as full a picture as as it might be helpful uh, to have. And um, can you spell out a little bit about the movement and um, what different you, you see that there are different strands uh, uh, within uh, the community of X-Files and you even draw a distinction between the negative and the positive programs. Uh, can you tell us, sort of lay out some of that territory for us? Yeah, sure. Um, but maybe I can say first, if you don't mind, just to preface that, um, you know, what I take sure. the kind of main uh, issue to be. So, so in your introduction to the book, you you said, um, you know, um, you know, maybe a good way of describing uh, uh, my 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 conclusion um, is to say that um, experimental philosophy rests on a mistake. And I think that that's right, although I think that it's really only one of these branches of experimental philosophy that you described that rests on that um, mistake. Um, and that's the negative, uh, the negative branch. And the mistake, by the way, is just to think that um, intuitions um, are appealed to or treated as evidence uh, for philosophical conclusions. So the book is basically an extended argument for that conclusion. No, that, that's not right. Philosophers don't, uh, with any regularity, treat uh, intuitions as evidence for um, for philosophical uh, conclusions, and the negative program of experimental philosophy, I think, depends on assuming that philosophers do indeed uh, treat intuitions as, as as evidence. The positive program, it's un, it's unclear. Now, the question about divisions, it's a bit of a dangerous question for me because um, I think X Files might, you know, think that I, that I'll, I'll I'll map this territory out um, inaccurately. So let me just apologize to them and. It, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, in advance. But basically the idea, I mean, so the negative program of experimental philosophy is that program that seeks to challenge um, more uh, traditional philosophical argumentation or conclusions um, by um, 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 by gathering data um, about people's uh, intuitions and noting that in many cases, uh, these intuitions pattern in um, in a troubling way. And so when they find that, when they find these troubling patterns of intuitions, they then say, aha, this shows us that um, the argument that was based on uh, uh, this intuition is uh, suspect. 
Now, what exactly what what um, reaction uh, the rest of us are meant to have uh, to these studies is somewhat unclear. What, what I say in the book is that I think that many uh, negative X files. That's how I'll, that's the terminology I'll use. I think many negative X-Files think that when, once we find these troubling patterns of intuitions, uh, we can then say that we ought to suspend judgment on some crucial claim involved in some more traditional argument. Um, and so that's the way I think that uh, the, the negative program tends to, to function. Now, the positive, the positive um, X-Files are more positive. So, so they, so they, they, uh, they're a less pessimistic bunch. They, they, what they seek to do is just determine uh, which intuitions people have, right? So, so uh, you know, you might you might be uh, reading a, a paper in philosophy, and the philosopher claims that some proposition is intuitive, and positive experimental philosophers uh, seek to test claims like that. Is this really intuitive? It seems like an empirical question. What we ought to do is figure out whether um, you know it's um, uh, whether 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 people um, as a whole or or certain groups of people uh, in in fact have that that intuition and and they don't they don't tend to to use their their results to to challenge uh, traditional arguments in fact sometimes uh, they're seen as just empirically supporting um, some or another uh, more traditional philosophical argument or conclusion so that's the sort of positive was that clear enough Bob I, 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 oh yeah, completely. So let me just ask a very quick sort of question. So is the concern um, among, let's say, just now specifically talking about the, 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 the negative uh, X-Files? Right. Um, so it, would it be right to say that here's sort of here's uh, a garden variety thought of the negative that drives um, negative experimental philosophy? <clears throat> it says something like this. Um, analytic philosophy seems to proceed as if the intuitions of philosophers or certain groups of philosophers or the certain philosopher who happens to be composing an article. Um, uh, anyway, it treats the intuitions of philosophers as if they were evidence for some philosophical conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, but we can show empirically that the intuitions of philosophers um, are not widely shared, might be peculiar to certain groups of philosophers might reveal um, more about the biases of privileged academics in particular parts of the world and in institutional settings. And that when you in fact go and uh, ask the, the, the proverbial people on the street um, uh, about some of the, the, the claims that philosophers seem to uh, grant as just intuitively the case, you find that a lot that that it's it's more common that people don't share the philosopher's intuitions. And if that's true, and if these intuitions are taken by analytic philosophers to play an evidentiary role, then it looks as if there's some deep rot <laughs> uh, at the core of analytic philosophy, because one of its main sources or alleged sources of of evidence, mm -hmm. the philosopher's intuition mm -hmm. can't play that. Yeah, you know, doesn't have any evidentiary value at all because the intuitions are not not widely shared and can be explained uh, in all kinds of ways that, that leads you to think they're not reliable guides to the truth. Is that how it might run? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, some people often say I couldn't have said it better myself and they don't mean it sincerely, but in this case, I couldn't have said it better myself. 
<laughs> Although I think, I think one, there's one thing though that, I mean, one detail I think that, that um, is maybe not quite right. So yes, it's true that, you know, sometimes um, uh, experimental philosophers are interested in showing that um, a certain intuition is not widely shared, but more often, at least in the negative program, what you find is the demonstration that these intuitions, so earlier I put it, the, the intuitions pattern in troubling ways. And so what I mean by that is that they pattern in ways that show that we shouldn't right, treat the intuition as evidence. So let's take just to, just to take a, just to put some meat on the, on the bones of this rather abstract characterization of what's um, uh, what the, what the negative uh, X file critique, as I call it in the book uh, is up to, to put some flesh on the bones of that. Um, one of the uh, papers that I mentioned earlier, this paper, semantics cross-cultural style seemed to show that um, a certain intuition in the philosophy of language varies with respect to culture, right? So um, Western subject groups tended to have a certain intuition and East Asian, in fact, some of the, um, uh, the, the East Asian subject pool was um, culled from uh, Hong Kong U students. Uh, that's another connection uh, that I have to, to, to XY. But anyway, so the, 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 the study seemed to uh, show that um, whether you have a certain intuition depends on whether you're of Western descent or instead of uh, East, East Asian descent. And the, and the result was fairly dramatic. It looked like there was this you know, robust, dramatic difference between uh, East Asians and Westerners with respect to the intuition. Let's just call it the intuition, the P. We can get into the details of the case later. Let's just call it the intuition, the P. Okay, so there's this mm-hmm. cross-cultural difference in the intuition, the P. But then, as I think um, uh, X-Files rightly point out, that spells trouble because uh, whether uh, you're of Western descent or instead of East Asian descent uh, matters not at all to the truth of the intuition, right? So it 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 doesn't matter uh, whether you're East Asian, whether it's true that that P uh, relative to the case in in question. So if you can show that the intuitions vary along this dimension that's not relevant to the truth of the intuition, then negative X files think you can show that the intuition ought not be trusted or we should uh, um, suspend judgment with respect to the, the judgment that the, so that's the idea that they have. So, so it's not just a matter of showing that um, this or that intuition isn't widely shared. It's also a matter, at least in many cases of showing that the intuitions vary as I describe it in the book along truth, irrelevant dimensions, right? Dimensions that are not relevant to the truth of the intuitions. And, right, right. and, and there are many, uh, there are many different uh, X5 studies that appear to show this uh, with respect to a variety of demographics. So, I mean, culture is just one. Um, so they've gotten this kind of truth irrelevant variability um, in cases where they present sort of groups of, of thought experiments um, to subjects ordered in different ways. So there are order effects uh, when it comes to intuitions. Um, some people claim that there are uh, gender uh, effects uh, effects due to socio socioeconomic status uh, and so on and so forth. And it looks like none of those things, right? Whether, whether you're a man or a woman, right? That's not going to matter to whether say an agent in a Gittier case knows or fails to know uh, the, the relevant proposition. So it's that kind of truth irrelevant variability that I think is crucial to the negative X file critique. Great. Um, so l- let's just get one more um, sort of uh, fact on the table uh, before we, 
sort of launch into the central argument of the book. Um, so we've been talking a lot about intuitions and you just mentioned thought experiment. Um, and before we get into uh, talking about the particular sort of thought experiment or intuitions that, that are sort of the, 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 the two central cases that you discuss in the book, one is a Gettier kind of case and the other is a, a famous um, example used by Kripke. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit just about what you mean by intuition or wh what exactly we're talking about when we say, you know, X-Files think analytic philosophers think that intuitions are evidence. Mm -hmm. um, what's into, what do we mean by intuition there? Yeah. So there's a way in which I think that's a bad question. <laughs> okay. That's good. <laughs> Not to, I, I don't mean any offense by that, but this is, I mean, you know, so sometimes when I give talks on, on this subject matter, you know, that at the, in the Q&A, the, the first question is, well, you've been going on and on about intuitions, but what the heck? <laughs> you know, what, what are intuitions anyway? Um, and the reason I think it's not an especially good question, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. I think that, that there's progress being made on it, actually. So I think that, you know, these people who are interested in um, intellectual seemings, right, they, they have a kind of nice beginning to be fully worked out um, theory of what an intuition might be. It's a certain kind of intellectual seeming. So it's not a judgment or belief. It's some other kind of um, propositional attitude. Um, so I'm thinking here of people like um, Michael Humer and um, John Bengtson and maybe um, uh, earlier on George Beeler. So I think this is kind of an interesting conception of intuitions. And I think there's, you know, interesting things to be said about the nature of intuitions, you know, what, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions on being an intuition? I mean, that's a decent question, I think, in, in, in analytic philosophy. But the reason I think it's a bad question, given my aims, is that I think it doesn't have to be answered in order to pursue the questions that I want to pursue. And the reason I think that is that I think that there are these clear examples of judgments that are meant to be either themselves intuitions or, or based on uh, uh, intuitions. And so we can just point to the paradigms. So you mentioned the Gettier example and you mentioned um, Kripke. Well, so Kripke has this um, famous case in, in, in his book, Naming Necessity, the, the, the Girdle case. And um, he makes a certain judgment about the Girdle case. He says, uh, well, in the story that I've just told, right, uh, the name Girdle refers uh, to the, the, the guy who stole the proof. I'm assuming that some of your listeners know some of the details of this, mm -hmm. uh, of this case, right? And not um, uh, to, to, to the proof's uh, discoverer, the proof of the incompleteness of arithmetic, right? So he makes that judgment and we can just say, look, this is an, is an example of the kind of thing that experimental philosophers and those that are opposed to experimental philosophy have in mind uh, when, when, when speaking of uh, intuitions. So we have these clear examples. Um, and not only that, we have a way of sort of drawing them together, of saying why they're examples of um, this troublesome thing, uh, in, intuition. Um, and so there's a kind of commonality uh, between these um, kinds of judgments. And that commonality, I think, is just, well, they're judgments that philosophers make about uh, thought experimental scenarios or hypothetical cases. Uh, and their judgments to the effect that uh, um, some philosophically significant property either is or isn't instantiated, be it knowledge or referring to Gödel and not Schmidt or what have you. So, so as I say in the book, I think what we ought to do when pursuing these questions about the role of intuitions in philosophical method and in particular their evidential role, what we ought to do is adopt what I call the no theory theory of intuition. So we, we should say only enough about intuition so that we get a grip on our subject matter 
and and no more. Um, and part of the reason for that is that you know um, conceptual analysis is hard, right? It's it's difficult to conceptually analyze anything. I mean, <laughs> if there's any if there's anything that we've learned from uh, the the history of the um, the problem of the analysis of knowledge, uh, conceptual analysis is tough, right? Uh, um, and there's no reason to expect that the conceptual analysis of intuition is going to be uh, any easier. So, hey, good news if we can proceed with these questions about the role of intuitions in philosophy without bothering uh, to engage in this difficult conceptual analysis of, of intuition. So that's 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 my idea about um, about that that question, the, the what is an intuition question. Well, perfect. So, and that makes good sense. Um, but um, let's just skip one other sort of sort of central sort of ingredient in this is. Um, uh, that into like a lot of philosophical concepts, um, uh, intuition does admit of a kind of um, ambiguity uh, that you point to. Um, that the term can name a state, a psychological state, but also can name it's like belief. Right? There's yeah. there's the state sense and the content sense. Um, so can you just sort of spell out that kind of distinction for us, and then um, uh, we'll get on to look at the at the central argument. Sure, sure. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for noting that because I think that is an important uh, aspect of the at least the first chunk of the book, you know, chapters one and two, this um, distinction between the um, um, state and content use of the term um, intuition. So as you say, there is this um, ambiguity in the term. Um, and I think maybe the clearest way to bring it out is to think about the phrase, the intuition that P, where P just stands in for some proposition or other. So if you think about that phrase, the intuition that P, you might, one might, use that phrase uh, to refer to the psychological state of intuiting that P and, and you mentioned belief. It's like belief in that way. So if you think of the phrase, the belief that P you might um, use that phrase to pick out the state, the psychological state of believing that P, but you might also use the phrase either one, the intuition that P or the belief that P you might also use those, those phrases more simply to refer to the proposition uh, P itself. So one of the examples that I use in the book is, um, you know, if you if you say um, um, uh, uh, the belief that there is life on Mars is likely true, um, it looks like there you're not talking about the psychological state. You're just talking about the content, right, um, um, that there's life on Mars. Right. So. So there's these two ways of using these phrases, the, the intuition, the P, the belief, the P, judgment also, the, the term judgment also admits of the same, um, the same kind of uh, ambiguity. And this ambiguity, it's, it's rarely commented on. Um, it's noted by um, Bill Lykin uh, in, a, in a book uh, from 1988, but he, he doesn't say much about its, um, its metaphilosophical uh, significance. The way he draws the distinction, he says there are these two ways of thinking about intuitions. You can think about the intuitings, right? The the state of it, um, the psychological state of intuiting that be, or the intuiteds, right? Which is um, just um, just p itself. Um, Jonathan uh, Ichikawa is another author who who mentions um, this um, important uh, ambiguity and uses it, I think, to great effect in his work in in, in metaphil and metaphilosophy. So. I urge uh, your listeners to, to check out um, Jonathan's, Jonathan's work on, on these, these topics. But the reason why it's an important um, 
to me is that um, is that I think that it it has a way of so so I think it, it counts as one of the, the 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 fact that there is this ambiguity in the phrase the intuition that be that has um, that plays a large part in explaining why philosophers think that it's almost uncontroversial to say that philosophy depends heavily on, on intuitions. So I think that the reason that they think that they think the reason that they think that it's almost uncontroversial that um, philosophy depends heavily on intuitions is that they're thinking about intuitions in the content sense. And I think that that's perfectly okay. Right. So, um, so I think that, uh, Saying that uh, intuitions are evidence, if you have the content sense of intuition in mind, that's perfectly okay. And what I mean by okay is that's true. So it is <laughs> it is true that the contents of uh, what some people would be happy to describe as intuitions are treated as uh, uh, evidence in philosophy. After all, many many um, people who read Gettier's short paper, uh, in which Gettier uh, seems to many of us to refute the JTB theory of knowledge. Many people have described their reactions to the cases that Getty describes in that paper as intuitive, right? It's intuitive that the guy doesn't know. Like mm-hmm. Smith character in um, in Gettier's cases. It's intuitive that Smith doesn't doesn't know, and um, that's fine. So 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 okay, let them uh, talk that way. Just so long as we keep it very clear that Gettier is not saying that the fact that I am experiencing this psychological state, right, is evidence uh, for the claims that I'm making. It's rather that the the content of the intuition is used as evidence uh, against this uh, more general theory, the the JTB theory. And would it be right to say then that just now deploying the distinction between the state and the content sense of intuition, that that, that you allege that or you argue that the negative X-file critique depends upon the claim that analytic philosophy treats intuition in the state sense of that term mm-hmm. as having evidentiary value. Yeah. And that's the thing you want to reject, right? That's the thing I want to reject. Yeah, that's right. So, right. so the idea is that, yes, this, this negative um, X-file critique exactly d- depends on, 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 on the claim that or involves the claim that um, philosophers treat intuitions in the state sense uh, as uh, as evidence and in fact treats intuitions in the state sense as evidence for the contents of those very intuitions. Right. So their, so their idea is that philosophers um, treat the intuiting that P as evidence for the truth of P. And, and I claim that the philosophers, in fact, never do that. Well, well, right. And when you put it that way, it it, it it would be kind of amazing if they did. I mean, amazing in a bad way. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah. Well, why don't, well, why don't we can we turn to the to, so I don't. So one thing I want to make clear that, that yeah. I don't accuse negative X files of claiming that, for example, it shows up as a premise in in some more traditional argument. So. Gettier has this argument against the JTB theory in his in his 1963 paper. I don't think and I don't think that negative X-Files think that it's a premise in that argument. I, Gettier, am experiencing the intuition that my Smith character doesn't know. Right. It's, it's not that. Um, it, it's rather that um, um, uh, they think that philosophers think of these intuitions in the state sense as the sort of source 
of the evidence. But it, but it doesn't show up as an explicit premise in, in these arguments, and, and negative X-Files don't, don't think so. And of course, if you read the paper, right, you, you don't find mention of intuitions anywhere in, in the paper, and so of course you don't find a premise that says, I get here, I'm experiencing this intuition that P, therefore P, right? Right, right. So let's, can we just talk that sort of, we've, we've, we've been mentioning the, um, the, the, the Gettier case and this Kripke case about Gödel. Sure. Um, so the, the book treats as sort of paradigmatic, um, uh, instances of analytic philosophical method. Um, the 10 coins case from Gettier and this Gödel Schmidt case, uh, from Kripke, these are, I mean, it's a, there's a reason why these are so centrally running through the book. These are common targets or maybe principal targets or principal cases in point uh, of the negative X-File critique. Yeah. Um, maybe you could just sort of remind us of what these two cases are, um, and then we could talk about um, why you think that, um, as you just said, these aren't appeals to intuitions in any uh, illicit sense. Right. Um, sure. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it's important. Um, let's, let's start with the, the Gettier case. So the, so the, um, as I'm sure listeners will remember there, there are actually two, um, thought experiments or two, two cases. Let's just call them cases. The two sure. cases in, um, in, in Gettier's paper where he, uh, attacks the, the JTB theory of knowledge. Um, one of them I call in the book, the 10 coins case. Uh, and the other is the, um, the, the Brown in, in Barcelona, what I'll call the Brown in Barcelona, uh, case. Um, and so listeners, I'm sure remember, uh, at least roughly, um, the details of these cases, but a part of the, um, part of the, um, one of the things that I want to emphasize in the book is that it's it's very important to pay close attention uh, to the way that the inventors or originators of these cases present them, right? Because if we want an if we want an accurate uh, picture of um, uh, philosophical practice as it actually is, uh, we need to pay close attention to the original presentations. So, by way of of, of reminding listeners what the 10 coins case is, I, I think I'll just read out, I mean, Gettier's paper is very, very short. So I think I'll just read Gettier's own, um, own presentation of the, of the 10, 10 coins case. And maybe I'll, I'll, I'll take um, less time and, and just describe in my own uh, words, um, Kripke's girdle case. How does that sound? Great. Bob? That sounds great. Okay. Great. So when Gettier presents the 10 coins case, he introduces, he introduces it by saying, suppose. So he says the following, so this is now just quoting from Gettier. Suppose that Smith and Jones have applied for a certain job and suppose that Smith has strong evidence for the following conjunctive proposition, proposition Gettier labels D, Jones is the man who will get the job and Jones has 10 coins in his pocket. Gettier goes on, Smith's evidence for D might be that the president of the company assured him that Jones would in the end be selected and that he, Smith, had counted the coins in Jones' pocket 10 minutes ago. Proposition D entails, proposition E, the man who will get the job has 10 coins in his pocket. Let us suppose that Smith sees the entailment from D to E and accepts E on the grounds of D for which he has strong evidence. In this case, Smith is clearly justified in believing that E is true. And now, what to me is the crucial bit, 
But imagine further that, unknown to Smith, he himself, not Jones, will get the job. And also, unknown to Smith, he himself has ten coins in his pocket. Proposition E is then true, though proposition D, from which Smith inferred E, is false. In our example, then, all of the following are true. First, E is true. Right? So the man who get the job has ten coins in his pocket. That's true. Smith believes that E is true. Smith believes that the man who will get the job has ten coins in his pocket. And three, Smith is justified in believing that E is true. But it is equally clear, Gettier goes on, that Smith does not know that E is true. For E is true in virtue of the number of coins in Smith's pocket, while Smith does not know how many coins are in Smith's pocket, and bases his belief in E on account of the coins in Jones' pocket, whom he falsely believes to be the man who will get the job. So there's the, 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 ten, coin, the ten coins case, one of the two cases um, that Gettier intends intended to um, use to show that um, the JTB theory of knowledge is, is not true. And how uncommonly elegant is it? <laughs> what a, it was very nice to listen to you read that. Part. <laughs> not, not many people will you know, find the analytic uh, philosophy that thrilling, but I'm glad, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you, you enjoyed that. And so how does the Kripke case run then? Right. So the Kripke case, uh, just to, to, to be briefer, so Kripke imagines, so as, as we all know, as a matter of uh, historical fact, um, Gödel uh, discovered the, the incompleteness of arithmetic. But Getty, uh, sorry, Kripke tells a, a, a little story, a little fiction in which um, uh, Gödel, um, uh, um, in which Gödel did not uh, 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 discover the, the proof of incompleteness. Instead, a man named a man that uh, Kripke uh, calls Schmidt, um, discovered the, the proof instead, and then Gödel stole uh, the proof um, uh, from um, from Schmidt uh, and published it under his uh, under his own name. And then Kripke asks, "Okay, so, so the so the, the 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 case in this case is supposed to be um, uh, in the service of um, rejecting a certain theory of uh, reference, the descriptivist theory of." Of reference, which roughly says that um, a name, a proper name, uh, refers to that object um, uh, um, uh, that's denoted by the definite descriptions that users of the name have in mind when they when they, when they use the name. Um, and so Kripke's um, sketch of this case is meant to show: well, here's an example where um, the, the people in the story who use the name Girdle they associate a certain description with it, namely the man who proved uh, incompleteness. Um, but that description picks out this other guy, Schmidt. And so now the question is, well, who does the name Girdle refer to in the story? And Kripke argues, I say, <laughs> doesn't in, he doesn't he doesn't merely record his intuition, but he argues that the name refers to the, uh, the man who stole the proof and not the um, not the proof's discoverer, Schmidt. So that's the the the, the Girdle case. And so the um, negative X files. then. Yeah. Uh, have um, shown that uh, there's some variation in um, what people, um, what conclusion people will draw from these cases. So there's some reason to think that some people think in the 10 coins case that no, um, Smith does know. Mm -hmm. And there's some reason to think um, in the uh, Kripke case mm -hmm. that no users of the of of the name Girdle are actually referring to Schmidt. 
Is that right? Yeah, that, that, that's right. Although I should mention that um, experimental philosophers, in, in neither case, really, did experimental philosophers test the actual vignettes that, um, that, that Gettier and Kripke authored, right? So they, they modified them in, in, in certain ways. And in fact, the, the Gettier case that um, shows up in um, what I think of is really the, the, the sort of first paper in experimental philosophy. That's a paper by um, Jonathan Weinberg, Sean Nichols, and Steve Stitch called, um, what is it called? Intuitions and Epistemic Normativity or something, something like that. Sorry, I don't, I don't have the title of the paper. They, they um, tested Gettier cases uh, but they didn't they didn't test the ten coins case uh, specifically. So they they tested a sort of variant. I mean, we're all I think familiar with the idea that there's this sort of general format to to Gettier cases, um, and so they used a different version. But what they found, what what Weinberg, Nichols, and Stitch found uh, in the um, in the in the Gettier um, case that they that they tested was that there was um, they claim um, cross cultural differences in in that. In, in the Gettier intuition, so East Asian. So, but both of these um, these early papers uh, compared Western and East Asian uh, subject groups, and both uh, claim to have found significant differences in the uh, intuitions about the the um, um, about the uh, about the cases. Right. So, so East Asians tended to have descriptivist as opposed to let's call them Kripkean intuitions about the Girdle case or, the, or a variant of the Girdle case. Uh, and um, East Asians tended um, to uh, to judge or intuit uh, that um, the uh, the agent in the Gettier case really did know uh, the proposition in question, right? Whereas Westerners tended to judge that the agent in the Gettier case really did not know uh, the proposition in question. So, so here we have an example of this kind of truth irrelevant variability uh, in. Intuitions with respect to what are, as you say, you know, um, very central uh, uh, cases in in analytic philosophy. One from epistemology, one from the philosophy of language. Okay, and so your 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 argument then, uh, the central argument of the book, then is that these results, um, the X five results, um, uh, pose no challenge to the philosophical positions that they're targeted against because in fact um in these cases not only the the Kripke and the Gettier cases but uh, a large swath of other famous cases um the uh what the authors of those cases are doing is actually arguing for a conclusion rather than merely appealing to the state of intuitiveness yeah, that's right. So I think. That, so can you tell us a bit about 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 how that works? Yeah. yeah so I think that um, yeah, this is a sort of common misconception. It's it's shared not just by um, experimental philosophers, X Files, but also by a fairly large swath of um, how to describe them um, more more traditional uh, uh, analytic philosophers um, to the effect that when you get the presentation of these cases, like the the Girdle case or the Ten Coins case. Um, what you get is just the um, recording of an intuition um, about the case. But in fact, if you look closely at the original text, uh, what you see instead is argumentation, right? So these, so get it, well, both Gettier and Kripke, I think, uh, clearly offer arguments. Um, now, 
nobody is going to deny that Kripke and, and, and Gettier offer arguments. So, so that's not, right? so, so that, so it's, so it's not as though, right? Naming necessity is just the recording of one intuition after the other, right? Um, no, nobody thinks that, nobody thinks that, um, nobody thinks that there's no argument against the JTB theory and the, um, in, in Gettier's, uh, 1963, 1963 paper, right? So, the, so the so the the dispute between uh, me and X Files isn't whether there's an argument in these in these texts. We both agree that there is an argument, but where we differ is I think that there's argument that is that there's argumentative support given for the the judgments about the hypothetical scenarios themselves, right? And the um, experimental philosophers think that no, when we pinpoint that area. Right. What we find instead is just this appeal to intu- intuition. Right. So it's just intuition that's the that either is or is the source of evidence for the claim that the agent in the Gettier case doesn't know or that um, uh, that um, that the that the agent in the Girdle case refers to, to Girdle and not Schmidt. And there's no argument uh, given uh, for those uh, for those for those crucial judgments about the hypothetical cases themselves. And I think that, yeah, if you if you look closely, what we find is. Um, um, arguments, not intuitions, as I like to, as I like to put it. That's that's the slogan. Arguments, not intuitions. And I think that that slogan it applies to, to to those places where you might most expect to find an appeal to intuition, namely with respect to judgments about the hypothetical cases or thought experiments themselves. Yeah, and that demonstration runs mainly by way of um, what I found a particularly illuminating um, discussion on your part of just going back to the actual texts in question (laughs) and just showing that, you know, well, this place where you're supposed to just get a raw appeal to the state of, of being intuitive, you actually see Kripke actually giving reasons why uh, the name refer, you know, why the name doesn't fail to refer to, to, to Girdle in this instance. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Right. I mean, I think, um, I think Kripke is an especially interesting case because, uh, it's, it's naming a necessity, uh, is widely regarded as a book that, you know, involves rampant and regular, um, appeal to, to intuition in support of judgments about hypothetical cases. And, and I think that that's just a, just a wildly inaccurate, you know, estimation of the, of the book. In fact, um, there is a, a long, multifaceted, uh, interesting and I think very compelling argument for the, for the, for the, Let's call it the girdle judgment, right? The, the judgment about the girdle case in 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 naming necessity. It appears not just in the main text, but there's you know subsidiary arguments in the footnotes, and so um, so I think yeah, that's a that's a, an unfair characterization of um, the way that uh, Kripke meant to establish the the truth of anti-descriptivism. Good. Good. So um, let me just sort of consider or ask you to to, to run us through. Um, one of the likely um, uh, rejoinders uh, at, to this point of the argument. So one of the things that you consider is um, uh, an, an ex, a negative X-file rejoinder that you call the relocation sort of worry, right. uh, which I take it is just the negative X-file now gets to say, well, okay, you've shown that, you know, there's more argument in the neighborhood of uh, the, the the Smith case and the, uh, the girdle case in in Kripke, um, but at some point there is an appeal simply to the state of intuitiveness mm. uh, that that somehow 
the the fuel that gets the 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 car going as it were right. even the, even if there's eventually arguments given can you tell us a little bit about why you don't find that mm. compelling yeah so i think that's a tough problem i mean it comes up as a couple of different points in the book um so i call it the relocation problem and maybe i mean you do you, you've done a great job of explaining what the what the what i take the problem to be but maybe i'll try to say in in my own words um you know what what this problem is supposed to be so this is a, i take this to be a problem for for my my view of, of philosophical method right so i say well you know there, there are there is definitely it's it's definitely part of um uh, the, the methodology of analytic philosophy to make appeals to thought experiments and, and hypothetical cases. And I say that the judgments that um, philosophers make about these cases are backed up by argument. Right. But um, arguments have premises right? <laughs> or usually right? arguments have, have premises. And so then there's a question, OK, well, if philosophers don't treat intuitions as evidence for the judgments that I'm calling the judgments about the hypothetical cases themselves. There's a, there's a, there's a question about what they treat as evidence or what justifies uh, their belief in the truth of the premises of these arguments for the judgments uh, about the, um, about the hypothetical cases. And so it can look to a reader of the book, I think as though all that I've done is I've managed to just move the, the 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 xy challenge sort of back a step right so no uh intuitions are not appealed to at this place right but if we move one inferential step i don't know is it back or forth one inferential step back right um intuitions are just going to pop up again right it's kind of like it's like one of those um one of those whack-a-mole uh <laughs> whack-a-mole sorts of problems right you push it push push the problem down in one area and it pops up in a in a, in a different area and so I think that's, you know, a serious and interesting problem. I think so. I mean, I, I guess a couple of different things that I that I can say in, in reply. And one is that, well, this challenge, the challenge that experimental philosophy is meant to raise against more traditional philosophy, the challenge is an empirical challenge. Right. So it depends on actual empirical results that. Um, and by, by the way, I think the results are very interesting. So. Here's an interesting fact about, um, you know, the, the psychology of philosophy. East Asians tend not to have the intuitions that, that the Westerners do, at least in some cases. Right. That's an interesting fact. And I appreciate that uh, that X-Files have, have you know put that on the table. Uh, but anyway, getting back to the, the relocation problem, the the challenge, the negative X-Y challenge is supposed to be an empirical challenge. It's supposed to depend on actual empirical uh, results. And we don't have any empirical evidence of any kind uh, that there's any reason to think that we'll find truth irrelevant variability with respect to the premises of these arguments that I say are meant to back up the claims that philosophers typically make about um, thought experiments and hypothetical cases. So, so the relocation problem to the extent that it's something that would be put forward by a, a, an experimental philosopher, I think is, it's unmotivated, right? The, the original motivation was this empirical data. Look, we've got this this variability in these intuitions, right? And then and then I come along and I say, well, but wait a minute, it, it is an intuitions. The philosophers that you're targeting, they argue for these claims. If they then say, oh, but what justifies the premises? Well, that's a fair question, but it's no longer you know supported or or backed up by real empirical data um, 
any, any longer, right? Um, so that's so that's I think um, one uh, important point to make about the relocation problem as it pertains to the uh, negative X phi uh, negative X phi critique. But yeah, and and, and yeah. let me just oh, break it. Right. Yeah. And then at that point, it, it I take it um, at that point it seems like the negative X phi challenge really just is a special version of more garden variety regress challenges. Yeah. Right. It just looks like, Oh, this is just, you know, the uh, regress problem for epistemic justification, or this is just a uh, infinite regress worry that's looming, Yeah, but it's not distinctive of anything that X phi is, you know, it's, it's not distinctive to X phi to raise this. Yes, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I couldn't have said it better myself. And and the only thing that I would, you know, would add there is that, yes, it then looks like it turns into this, um, yeah, this regress worry or the yeah the problem of uh, you know inferential justification, and I mean I think that that so that's that's a that's a, pro- a problem and it's, it's a problem that's been around for a long time and it and it's unclear uh, you know how uh, how it it should be solved or if it can be solved. But one thing that I think is very important to note about that problem, the problem of the regressive reasons, let's let's just call it that, um, is that it's a very general problem. So it's not a problem that applies to philosophy only, right? It, apply, it applies to every domain of, of inquiry. And I think that that, um, that makes, that sort of blunts the, whatever remaining, once you notice that the, the, the XY challenge, if it, if it sort of makes this relocation problem move, you know, it doesn't have the, the empirical bite that it once had, right? It, it sort of takes the oomph, any remaining oomph out of it, because it now looks like, well, okay, so you've now, now you're saying, well, there's always this question that we can ask, you know, what justifies the, the premise of this argument, right? And if I then give you an answer, I say, oh, Q, Q justifies the premise of, of the argument. You can you say, oh, well, what justifies Q? And, and, and then there we go. We're off, off to the races, right? We've got the, the regress problem. But that's you're, a problem. On the Agrippa, you're on the Agrippa trilemma. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> yeah, right. So, 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 yeah, so this is a problem. This is a problem for inquiry. It's, it's not a problem that's special. Uh, to philosophy, and I think that that's very important to to note. Um, um, everybody, every every uh, inquirer uh, faces uh, the the regress problem. Um, and 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 just one final point about about that, and that's that there are varieties of solutions to the regress problem. So some varieties do make a place for intuitions, right? Maybe intuitions are the the unjustified justifiers, you know, the the things that stop. Uh, the, the regress, but there are other uh, ways of addressing the the regress problem. You could be a coherentist, uh, for example, right, and say that um, um, that you don't really need uh, to stop uh, the regressive reasons. Um, and actually, I think that it, 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 what coming back now from a problem that I think of is this interesting epistemological problem, the, the regressive reasons problem. Two questions about philosophical method. I think actually what, what we find in, in, in philosophy, you know, when we look at, um, again, when we look at the original texts where these arguments that we think of as very influential or important or as examples of progress in, in analytic philosophy, when we look there, we find not just, you know, reasons given for thinking that a particular judgment about a hypothetical case is true, but reasons for the reasons, right? And sometimes reasons for the reasons for the reasons. So I think, I think that it's it's underestimated just how much kind of inferential structure one finds in um, in um, typical examples of of good philosophy. Well, right, and 
this part of the of the book I thought was extremely compelling. <laughs> extremely compelling. Um, so one one thing I wanted to make sure we get to uh, is um, in addition to offering a defense of analytic philosophy and its use of intuitions and clarifying its role of the use of intuitions uh, against this negative X Phi critique, you also take some time to. Um, offer some criticism of other anti-XFI strategies. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, those maneuvers and why you think they um, uh, don't succeed? Yeah. Okay. So the so right. So they're they're so so my way of replying to uh, experimental philosophy, or at least to the to the negative uh, variety of um, experimental philosophy. I have to admit to you and to your listeners is not a very popular. One. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, ho- hopefully the book, I mean, the book is just out. So hopefully the book will gain some more converts. Um, I mean, my closest ally in this regard is um, Herman Kaplan, who recently published uh, a book called philosophy without intuitions. And, um, you know, the, the kind of overall theme uh, of the two books is similar, although my book focuses much more on um, experimental philosophy than, than, um, than Herman's does. And um, Timothy Williamson has said some things similar to the kinds of things that um, that I say. But so far as I can tell that it's really just yeah. I mean, maybe Bob, I'm, gl- I'm glad that you've been convinced by some, <laughs> some of the things that you've read. But I, but I think that at this point, it's very much a minority position. But um, but not but 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 also what's um, what's not a minority position is a kind of. Um, uh, negative reaction to negative uh, experimental philosophy. And so one of the interesting questions is, well, you know, how do most people think we ought to react to, you know, mo- most people who think that there's nothing wrong with traditional methodology in philosophy, how, how do they think we should respond or reply to, to, to this challenge, uh, the challenge of um, negative experimental philosophy? Um, and there are, I, I think, at least two discernible ways uh, one way is the uh, what I call the and what other people call the expertise defense or the expertise reply to the to the negative X Y challenge, and the other is um, what I call the uh, the multiple concepts reply to the to the negative X Y challenge. Um, so um, where should I start? I should start, I guess, with the the former. Sure. Right. So um, so the expertise defense. Um, says, uh, well, the problem with experimental philosophy is uh, really that um, experimental philosophers have been experimenting on the wrong subjects. That's, this is how I like to think of the expertise defense anyway. So, so typical examples of experimental philosophy uh, recruit uh, subjects from uh, undergraduates at, at universities, right? Um, but according to the proponent of the expertise defense, this is a bad uh, subject to test. You know, we ought to be testing, um, you know, those people who know something uh, about philosophy. Surely they are going to have uh, better philosophical intuitions than um, than your average uh, university undergraduate who might not have any background and sometimes is explicitly, you know, selected for not having uh, any philosophical background uh, whatsoever. And so the expertise defense says, you know, what matters are the intuitions of of, of the experts, um, uh, we shouldn't trust the the intuitions of the of the untutored and the uninitiated. Um, um, 
Now, I, I mean, I think you, you can probably, well, you've read the book, Bob, so you know what yeah. I'm going to say, but um, I think listeners can, can sort of predict what, what I'll say about the expertise defense. I mean, I think that the expertise defense makes the very same mistake that the um, proponents of the, um, the XY critique make, and that's thinking that intuitions in this, in the, in the state sense um, um, qualify as uh, evidence in philosophy. It's just that the, the proponents of the expertise defense say it's the intuitions of a particular group of people that matter, right. namely the philosophers. Right. Uh, and so I, I think that this, so, so, I mean, to, to make a, 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 not, not, not a very long story, but, a, a, but a somewhat long story, somewhat shorter. Uh, I'll just say that that's basically the reason I, I reject the expertise reply. I think that it, 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 just makes the very same mistake and assumption that the critique that it's attempting to reply to makes. Right. And I guess, I mean, one thing that, that I could add is that, you know, I don't think that they've done a very good job. I mean, I think that properly conceived the expertise reply is an empirical challenge to the empirical challenge that's been mounted against analytic philosophy. Right. So it's a, it's supposed to be an empirical reply, but I don't think that the expertise, that the proponents of the expertise defensive have, made good on the defense because they haven't gone out and done surveys of the experts. I mean, you would think, you know, if you're going to say, look, it's the experts intuitions that matter here, you know, stop, stop surveying undergraduates. You, you would think if someone were to say that they would then, you know, get out of their armchair and, and, and start asking, uh, you know, show up at the APA with a bunch of surveys. in their hands. Uh, but who knows what they would talk about. <laughs> right. Those are the, right. But, but they, but they haven't done that. And in fact, I mean, the, I mean, experimental philosophers have very graciously started doing this for them, and, and initial results don't look so good. That is, it looks as though, you know, very similar biases and effects that show up in the intuitions of the holy polloi show up in the intuitions of the experts, too. Uh, and if you if you look at the book, there's some references to experimental work that seems to suggest that that's the case. So the expertise defense, I think, is a very weak um, defense against, uh, you know, what would be, except for the adherence to this myth, the myth of the intuitive, what would be uh, an interesting and powerful? I mean, after all, the philosophy did depend on intuitions in the way that experimental philosophers uh, think think that it does. Uh, then I think analytic philosophy would be in real trouble. And I, and I guess that's why I think that um, the expertise defense is is no good. It sort of misgages the depth of the of the of the challenge that's been posed um, by by uh, by Stitch and his students. So what about the, the different concepts? Yeah, right. the different concepts, uh, the multiple concepts reply. Right. right. So the multiple concepts reply is the reply that runs something, um, something like this. And to have some names, I guess, so I've, I've, I've found examples of the, the multiple concepts reply. Um, so the, the multiple concepts reply seems to be a, a fairly popular reply among fairly famous and influential philosophers. So for example, uh, Bill Lykin, who I mentioned earlier, um, makes uh, something like the multiple concepts reply to some of the XY data and the arguments based on that data, the challenge based on that data. Uh, so does uh, Ernie Sosa and also Frank Jackson has, is, is on paper um, um, endorsing something like this uh, multiple concepts reply. And the multiple concepts reply is just that, well, um, Look, in these cases where you say, you, the experimental philosopher, say that you've found 
for example, cross-cultural variability in Gettier intuitions. In those examples where you say you found cross-cultural variability in, in, in Gettier intuitions, it could be that instead what you found is a group of people who have a slightly different conception of knowledge than we, you know, Western analytic philosophers have. So maybe when East Asians respond differently to the vignettes that experimental philosophers hand to them, right, they're getting it right about their East Asian concept of, of knowledge, whereas we Westerners are getting it right about our uh, Western concept of knowledge. And, and really all the results um, uh, suggest or show is that um, different groups of people can have uh, different concepts of these important um, philosophical uh, phenomena, like like um, moral responsibility or or reference or or, or knowledge, knowledge or what have you. Yeah, yeah. So so that's the so that's the idea. The idea is that you know the 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 results that uh, uh, experimental philosophers have gathered show at best uh, that you know people are. I don't know, that the respondents are speaking a slightly different language than we're speaking when we talk about, say, knowledge. Right? That, that's how Lycan puts it, actually. He says maybe, you know, maybe maybe East Asians who respond in, in the way that they do to the to the to the Gettier cases, uh, maybe they're, they're English speaking East Asian respondents, by the way. Maybe they're speaking a, a, a different dialect of English yeah. than, the, than the dialect that, that we're speaking. Um, so that's the um, that's the form of the. Uh, the reply and um um let's see so um so i guess so 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 i i I make i guess two complaints about the the multiple concepts reply in the book and and the first is just that um the first is just that again it looks as though the multiple concepts reply makes the same mistake (laughs) that um uh, that the expertise reply makes and that the negative X-file critique makes. That is, the multiple concepts reply seems to assume uh, that intuitions in the state sense are treated as evidence in first-order philosophy. And so I think um, that's a serious mark against uh, the multiple concepts reply. But I also think that um, they don't have good enough grounds um, for claiming uh, that um, – these different groups of subjects are applying different concepts. Um, and so what I say is that, um, you know, the, the idea that when, you know, I, I assert P and you, Bob, deny P, we ought to just take it as a default that we are genuinely disagreeing with one another. Of course, it could be that we're understanding the the words that we're using slightly differently. And so we're not genuinely degreeing. We're having what's sometimes called a merely verbal dispute. That's a possibility. But the default should be Bob and I genuinely disagree over P, right? And they, they, the, the proponents of the multiple concepts reply, I think just, they do nothing to argue for the conclusion that we ought to think that this default Justification that we have for believing that when people seem to disagree, they actually are disagreeing should be overridden in the cases that experimental philosophers are interested in. And I think at, at least in some of the cases of um, these proponents of the multiple concepts, I think that a kind of skepticism about the about the possibility of knowing that there is a um, that, that we have a genuine disagreement on our hands is looming. Right. Because if if what you say in response to these X-Files results is, oh, well, 
hey, look, it's possible that we're merely verbally disagreeing with this this other group of, of people. Well, that that possibility is a possibility that applies to to you to you and I, right? So that's right. Um, so so the consideration seems to suggest that you and I don't know whether we're genuinely agreeing or or, or, or disagreeing. And so I think I think that the multiple concepts re- reply engenders a kind of skepticism that's even more severe um, than the kind of skepticism that you would get from the the negative X-file critique. Well, great. So you've been very generous with your time. So let me let me ask one final question um, uh, before uh, before I let I let you go. Um, do you think that there are any um, prospects for um, the kind of positive work that X-Files do? Um, is there any place in philosophy for, um, or any promise for philosophy to the, I mean, leaving aside the critique of analytic philosophy that seems to fuel a lot yeah. of uh, X-Fi work, um, and just focusing on the the actual positive work that they do, is there uh, any promise to some of the work that gets done there on the positive side? Uh, yeah, yes. Thanks. Thanks for asking that question, because I think this is an important part of the book. And um, I think that, you know, um, that, um, you know, if you look at the, uh, the, the, the 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 back cover, the blurbs on the back cover, you know, you, you'll you come away with the sense that the book is just an extended um, attack on um, experimental philosophy. And to some extent, it is an attack on experimental philosophy. I don't deny that. Um, but I do think that um, it's important um to emphasize uh, the positive features of uh, experimental philosophy. Um, and, and by positive features, I, I don't mean to be speaking of the positive program in experimental philosophy. So I don't, I don't mean to say that it's the positive program that's particularly um, fruitful or, or worthwhile or anything like that. I just mean that XY in general is a phenomenon, you know, in, in all of its branches has done some um, positive, uh, has, do, has done some good for uh, philosophy. Um, after all, I mean, my, my interest in, in 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 methodological issues, as I as I said early on in the interview, was you know inspired by conversations with with um, experimental philosophers, and so I have them to thank for you know reflecting seriously on 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 my own philosophical practice and, and thinking carefully about you know the philosophers that I admire, how they how they manage to how they've managed to convince me of the philosophical views that I that I now have. And so without experimental philosophy, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, how, how reflective I would have been about all of that stuff. And so I think it's, it's great. A lot of the good work that's being done in methodology, I think, you know, is, is owed at least in its kind of impetus, right. To, to experimental philosophy. So I think that that's a, that, that's an important thing to note. Um, you know, while, 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 you know, bad nothing in a way, and I've been bad nothing for, <laughs> for most of the, uh, for most of the interview. Um, and I think also that, yeah, as you say, there's this there's this way in which I think that this that the myth of the intuitive um, has hamstrung uh, experimental philosophy and it sort of keeps it away from contributing in the way that I think it, it can contribute most valuably, um, because um, the, the kind of dominant thinking in, in experimental philosophy circles is that these results that you get when you go out there with your surveys that has some bearing on philosophical theory, right? It has some bearing on, you know, what the, whether this or that argument uh, in philosophy is good or bad, it has some bearing on, on philosophical theory, 
or the evidence for, for has some bearing on the evidence for, for, for philosophical theory. And I think if you just put that aside, you just, you just say, no, that, let's not worry about that. And let's instead just focus on this interesting distinction between, as I put it in the, in the conclusion of the book, two ways of cognizing a judgment, right? Either arriving at that judgment after careful reflection, right? Or arriving at it relatively spontaneously and non-inferentially, right? If we just focus on that distinction, I think that distinction has a lot of, there's a lot of interesting work that, that can be done and is being done on, on that distinction. And I guess I think here primarily of work that's being done in, in moral psychology, um, right? And where, where the difference between, you know, the kind of, you know, the, the real time, quick uh, moral decision making uh, that you do uh, is, is often very different um, from, you know, uh, what you think you ought to do when considering a hypothetical scenario sitting in your in your armchair. So I think I think that distinction is extremely important, maybe perhaps especially to, to ethics and moral philosophy um, and that experimental work has an obvious and clear relevance um, to it. Um, but 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 I, but I but I think that, yeah, that, that experimental philosophers ought to just sort of put aside the idea that um, this experimental work on intuitions will have some bearing on philosophical theory or the evidence uh, for, 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 for philosophical theory. Um, and I think that distinction, this, this distinction between two ways of cognizing and judgment, you know, let's just say inferentially or non-inferentially, I think that that distinction, you know, that, that can crop up in, in other areas too, not just in, in ethics, but in, but in, um, in the philosophy of language and epistemology too. And it'd be interesting to see, you know, um, um, to see what work sort of philosophers, you know, hand in hand with um, cognitive scientists and, and psychologists could could do um, exploring that um, that distinction. I just don't think that any of it is going to show us that, for example, Kripke was wrong about descriptivism or that Getty was wrong about the JTB theory. Well, that's excellent. Um, I want to thank you for uh, sharing your time um, to talk about the book, um, The Myth of the Intuitive. Um, Max, thank you so much. Bob, thanks very much. I was delighted to, to give the interview and to have a chance to, to, to talk with you about the book. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity. It was a pleasure. Well, take care now. Okay. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Max Deutsch of the University of Hong Kong. We were talking about his new book, The Myth of the Intuitive, newly published by MIT Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for listening. Thank you.